The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. Now presenting the documentary feature, Pamela, A Love Story. From award-winning director Ryan White, the LA Times says, director Ryan White's documentary lets Pamela Anderson retell her story in her own words with her own focus. Emmy nominated for Outstanding Documentary or Nonfiction Special. Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson, and welcome to Top Docs. Today, I'm talking to Mstislav Chernov, the director of 20 Days in Mariupol. 20 Days in Mariupol is a story about first days of a full-scale invasion of Russia in Ukraine. And it's the story of a siege of a city of Mariupol, a huge industrial key city in Ukraine, and a group of journalists that are trapped there and trying their best to survive, but not only to survive, to keep telling the world what is going on in that city. The film had its world premiere at the 2023 Sundance Film Festival, where it won the Audience Award in the World Cinema Documentary category. Mstislav Chernov is an award-winning AP journalist, writer, and photographer who's covered war zones, including Syria, the Battle of Mosul in Iraq, as well as all of the key political and military events in Ukraine for the last 10 years, including, of course, the Russian invasion of Ukraine on February 24, 2022. Mstislav comes from the city of Kharkiv in Ukraine. He and his team set out to Mariupol to cover the war. Their work, the Siege of Mariupol, later received the Pulitzer Prize for Public Service, among other awards. 20 Days is no doubt a stark film, a hard and painful film, but it's also really incredible to hear Mstislav describe it as a hopeful film, too. It's a film you need to see. It's haunting, it's important, and it's incredibly well made. And you can see it in theaters starting July 14th in New York City and July 21st in Los Angeles and San Francisco. It's being released by PBS Distribution. As usual, if you like this interview, please follow us and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell a friend. Also, please follow us on Instagram at TopDocsPod and on Twitter, also at TopDocsPod. And now, my conversation with Mstislav Chernov, the director of 20 Days and Mariupol. Mstislav Chernov, welcome to Top Docs. Thank you. Do you have a hidden gem, a documentary that you think doesn't get the attention it deserves? When I think about my love for documentary filmmaking, I always come to think about a film that is called Sans Soleil by Chris Marker. That film largely inspired me as a, as a filmmaker as a, and as a cameraman. It is pretty old, so not many people have seen it but I would recommend it to every single filmmaker who wants to go beyond just telling stories straight. It gives a documentary filmmaker a filmmaking, a sense of poetry, which I think we all miss. Thank you for that. And I'll just add that Sans Soleil was the touchstone for me and my cohort of documentary film school compatriots back in the day. It's an amazing film. Through your film, 20 Days in Mariupol, 
you are probably best known as an AP journalist, Associated Press journalist, but you have an extensive background as a photographer. Can you talk about your early work in photography and how it led you to where you are today? I would even start earlier because before the photography, I was a writer and I'm still a writer. So a lot of work I do with videos now, with video editing, filming, and with this recent work of a filmmaking that I started, being a writer really helps because that is just a, like a habit to tell stories and that literature background. I think is a key to the filmmaking work I do. But then I was a photographer and I was a documentary photographer and I worked on long-term projects on social issues in Ukraine, Belarus and Far East when war in Ukraine started. And as probably a lot of Ukrainian journalists, filmmakers and photographers, I automatically became war journalist a war photographer. And then my collaboration with the Associate Press started. I started filming and I was thrown in a filmmaking, let's say violently, like a person who couldn't swim, he's thrown in the water. And I didn't know anything about covering the war. I knew little about filming and editing. And the first thing I have covered for Associate Press was a crash of the Mage 17 flight when Russia shut down a Boeing airplane over Donbass region. And that was my first war coverage experience and also filmmaking experience. And that's actually what started my career as a filmmaker because for that work, I received several prizes. And then I just continued working more with the video than with the photo. Can you describe the other members of your team? We kind of catch glimpses of them in the film or hear snippets of their voices, but it would be great to know more about who is on the team and how you worked together. The question of how much of a team and of myself to show in a film was one of the important decisions while we edited the film. We wanted it still to be a journalistic perspective. However, I didn't want to overshadow any of the people we see on a screen. I didn't want to stand between the audience and truly important stories of the people that are suffering during the siege of Mariupol. So you see really little of the team in a film, and that is a deliberate choice. I have a lot of footage of us, myself sometimes, but we place it really carefully in the few moments of the film, just enough to let the audience know that we are there, but we are not protagonists in any way. That being said, having a team, especially in a conflict zone and such a dangerous one as Mariupol was probably the most dangerous experience I've ever had in my life. And I've seen at least five wars is crucial for survival. Is a still photographer and all the images Pulitzer Prize winning images and World Press photo winning images, uh, photographs of Irina, a pregnant woman on a stretcher who unfortunately did not survive the maternity hospital bombing was made by him. And these are iconic images that will probably forever stay in, in history. And he's my friend. We've been covering this war for nine years, back and forth to the front lines. 
So we know each other very well. And it is important to have someone that you know and trust in such conditions. Now, Basilisa Stepanianko is a young producer, local journalist who is a field producer for this film. And she helped to arrange a lot of production details on the ground, security, connections with people, maintaining, you know, ethical questions, making sure that people around us are aware of our presence, following up with contacts, with the stories. Those are key points in responsible documentary filmmaking and journalism. That is invaluable work. And you don't really see much. And I think the field producers are not appreciated enough, but I cannot say how important it is to have a, such a capable field producer. Absolutely. And I would just make the comment that because we see so little of you as well as really don't see them at all, it does create a strong sense of intimacy with the people you're interviewing. I certainly felt that. You're from Kharkiv and do you still live there? No, I don't. But uh, my uh, first request to an editors, which after Mariupol told Mstislavs, you did enough, you can have a rest. If you want to you leave, you can leave and you don't have to keep going. And I said, no, I want to go back to Kharkiv because it's my hometown. It wasn't besieged at that point, but it was really, really heavily attacked. So it was important for me to be there. And to a certain extent, it was kind of a deja vu experience because after Mariupol, I saw again and again people lying on the streets, killed by indiscriminate shelling and medics rushing to save these people and people hiding in the basements of their houses. Everything repeated itself again and again. It was such a heartbreaking experience because one time I just had an address and I drove there and I realized that's the house where I lived as I was a student for five years. And there were three in front of that house that were killed by a shell 15 minutes before that. I've just lived through my childhood experiences and my student experiences through this lens of the war. It was heartbreaking, but it was important to come back there. I wanted to ask you about growing up there. The city, which is, I think, the second largest city in the country, correct? Yes. It's on the northeastern side of the country, and it's only about 40 kilometers from the Russian border. Growing up, did you identify with Russia culturally, linguistically, and in any way? I have to make another notice that actually by, let's say, by cultural breakdown, Kharkiv is a very similar city to Mariupol. It is an industrial city and there are a lot of students as well. So it is quite similar to Mariupol, let's say, social composition. Probably every single family there in Kharkiv has a connection, some kind of a connection to Russia, whether it's a family connection or it's friends. That being said, I am the part of generation that was technically born in the Soviet Union. I was born in 1985. However, I started school that it was already Ukrainian. So my whole conscious life I've spent in this independent country, Ukraine, and my identity was built on that. Everyone, almost everyone, regardless of in which city lives of my generation, knows the only country, and this country is Ukraine. We don't have nostalgia over 
the Soviet Union. We don't have much cultural references to that time because the world has really changed since then. Therefore, when revolution happened in 2014, that was probably a start of my, again, involvement in documentary, like conflict documentary coverage. We all really supported that revolution because it felt quite natural for my generation. It was not a choice between cultural space of Russia or Europe. It was more of a generational choice, whether you stay in the past or you go forward. I never identified myself with Russia. I think that's a really important point. And just a quick aside, which is one of my best friends from high school in California is from Kharkiv, but from an earlier generation. And he much more identifies with the Soviet Union and Russia. And I think it's purely generational. So it's an important point to make. Of course, he doesn't anymore. Just one more quick question about that, though. I'm curious if you and your friends in your generation ever identified Russia as a potential threat? No. You know what? No. And I think it's partially because we grew up in Eastern Ukraine, which again had more connections to Russia. And in Western Ukraine, the awareness of aggressive behavior of Russia over the course of history of Ukraine, hundreds of years, there was much more awareness about that in Western Ukraine. In Eastern Ukraine, I remember in schools, studying how to handle guns in school. That class was called civil defense class. And we learned about various behaviors during disasters and nuclear disaster, floods, <laughs> everything we're potentially going through now. Back then, it, again, it felt irrelevant. And again, we also were taught how to handle guns. I remember always laughing at that because we were joking, like, who are we going to fight with? We're surrounded by friends. And the teacher was like, you never know. So <laughs> you never know. That is very well put. Your weapon ended up being a camera, thankfully. And I have to say, never, as much as I'm involved in the war and the coverage of the war, as much as I'm involved emotionally in what is happening with Ukraine now, I never identify myself being a soldier. And I think it's a really dangerous notion for a journalist to do. We're not fighters. Yeah, thank you for saying that. Once the Russian invasion was launched, you and your team basically went straight for Mariupol. Is that correct? Yeah, we were in Bakhmut. We were sitting in a restaurant, which doesn't exist anymore. And we watched news, Russian news, in fact. And we were analyzing rhetorics that Russian media has and the statements of the Russian politicians. And that was a very good indicator of what is to come. It was pretty clear that the war is about to start. We just didn't know to which extent this new wave of aggression will be, whether it's going to be everywhere across the country, or it's going to be escalation within Donbass, as we saw before. And regardless of that, Mariupol seemed to be a key target for Russia. So it was just... Let's say tactical choice for us to go there. We already back then we realized it might be surrounded. So partially the choice we made at that day on 23rd was whether we are prepared to be besieged. And yeah, it was a team decision. We went there. In retrospect, do you think you were prepared? You can't really be prepared for the war. That's axiom. 
However you pre well prepare, you can't. We did a lot of right decisions and that's where the experience of various wars across the world helps me. You have an idea of how things are going to unfold. So you secure several locations across the city in various neighborhoods where you can stay and you foresee several locations where you can charge batteries, connect with your editors and you basically plan everything in advance as much as you can and then you adjust. So yeah, what we weren't prepared is for how quickly Mariupol is going to be surrounded. And the worst part that we were definitely not prepared that we would be alone there. That made a lot of difference because if there were more journalists, then for us, it would be much easier not to be a target. But since we were left the only ones, which is a phenomenon by itself, I still have no explanation to that. We were specifically targeted by names because we were just reporting from there, the only ones. So we automatically became information terrorists for Russia and our names became known. That raised the level of danger. Yeah, it's certainly a dramatic turn of events when it becomes clear that you and your team are in serious peril that you're going to likely be targeted. I want to ask you, you mentioned earlier that you started as a writer and the film, as the title implies, is a diaristic account of the events unfolding over the course of 20 days in Mariupol from the start of the war to when the Russians basically took complete control of the city. One of the most penetrating elements of the film is your narration, which is, I would say, rather even in tone, somber, and reflective. When and how did you write this narration? First of all, this narration is not a first choice. We tried, I tried really hard to avoid it, to be frank, is we progressed in searching for the right narrative tool and structure for the film. We tried, I've recorded hours and hours of interviews with the survivors from Mariupol, the people who you see in a film that were able to leave as well, doctors, police, families, we felt that probably we should not take the audience out of these 20 days to maintain the suspense and the pressure. We started to search for a different narrative device. And then there was a moment when I hoped a third person narration would work, something that is used in Tansole, as we spoke about this film, when there is a woman, for example, or someone reading someone's letters or news dispatches for that matter, which I wrote a lot from Mariupol. So a text was ready. And the film is largely right now based on the article, which we wrote with the Paris writer, Laurie Hint, who received a Pulitzer Prize for that too with us. The article is called 20 Days in Mariupol as well. So I hoped that the third person narration would work. But then again, the fact that I am and we are the part of the community that we are telling story about and the fact that we actually, our feelings are relevant there to some extent and what is happening to us is relevant. I started narrating it and I'm not a professional narrator. I never did it before. So it was a huge challenge to find the right tone. So it will not be too emotional because the worst thing you can do is just impose your own emotions on the audience, but at the same time, not to be too distant and cold because 
that is an opposite to what I feel. I'm still engaged in the narrative and story. The search extended even to what distance to the microphone we should keep when we speak to the audience, when I narrate. And the writing happened, whatever is not written in an article, 20 days in Mariupol, the writing happened naturally over the editing process. So we were editing and I was writing at the same time. It was a very, very intensive process because the first part of editing, I was editing with Michel Meister over Zoom. I was covering the Kharkiv, coming back to the front line for US. It's work time and for me it's like overnight. So I would finish my daily work and start editing. But then we met in person and edited in person. That was a very intensive process when the whole writing happened. You managed to find the right tone. I can say that as well. And there's a great economy of writing as well. In the beginning, there was much more text. And from editorial perspective, we get a lot of suggestions from editors, which oversaw our work. And they were all logical and correct to give audience more context on Mariupol, to give audience more context on the current events that are unfolding beyond Mariupol or on the team. So there were a lot of suggestions and a lot of text in the beginning. But at some point we realized that this just doesn't work. There should be more silence, much more silence. There's a scene on day one when you run into a woman and a man who are evacuating and the woman doesn't want to give her name, and her husband says, fuck you, prostitute, to you. You say in the narration that you understand their anger, but it must have taken you a bit aback to have your fellow country people treat you like the enemy when, as a Ukrainian and a journalist, you're there trying to tell Ukrainian's story to the world. I have to say, it is very interesting to see the audience responses to that moment. And... The response of the international audience would be more of a, a shock or just a, a regret. But when you see the Ukrainian audience reacting on this, and this is quite interesting, the Ukrainian journalists who saw the film or a regular residents, they laugh at this moment. It was an eye-opening for me that there is a different response. And I understand why now, because being a journalist in Ukraine and, well, going across the world. I'm I used to this response, but also sometimes you would get this response in Ukraine. And there are two different responses. There is a response, don't film me, which I also got many times. And you don't see these people who told me don't film me. But there are people who just want to express their anger or their feelings about how they feel about press. So showing that moment was also important to show the variety of the reactions. And yeah, we definitely, I'm definitely used to this response. But look, I feel there is a general trend, a very unfortunate trend of a distrust towards journalism in general in the world. You, you would probably get a similar response in any country at some point, especially if you see people in distress and you can't blame people which are in distress, which are losing their homes. It's just natural. It is. And I think even though this is not a film about you, we do get a sense of you and the way you connect with people and the way you interact with them. And it's one in which you, I think, just relate to them person to person more so than journalist to, you know, victim. And it leads to some interesting interactions as well. There's another scene early on 
where the shelling of the city by the Russians has begun and you run into an older woman and she doesn't know what to do and she's asking you what to do and you advise her to go to her basement, which seems logical. Later, it turns out that there's shelling in her neighborhood and she was forced to go to a shelter where you run into her again and she confronts you about the advice you gave her and in the narration, you say simply, I was wrong. What can I say? I was wrong. We all hoped for this war to be much less violent and these hopes did not did not work but again even if this question is what to do to drop the camera and just try to help the person or to keep filming this question is always there i remember when i started conflict journalism i made my mind once and forever if i see someone who is in need of help and if there is anyone competent enough to give this help to the person, then I will keep filming. If there is no one else, then I will just engage and I will try to help. And that happened everywhere. I remember in 2016, I was in Mosul and it was not an argument. I was filming the refugees and IDPs coming out of the city. It was a lot of violent fighting at that point between Iraqi special forces and ISIS, and there were a lot of people coming out, a lot of civilians coming out of the city, and they were getting on the trucks, just simple construction trucks. It was very hard for women, children. You could see me keep filming, but also grabbing the people and pulling them in. And I remember the conversation happening between me and editor, whether this shot should be included in the news edit or not. So a lot of these interactions that you see in a film were not included in the news edits that came out of Mariupol at the time when I was filming and sending them. And I simply just forgot about any of those interactions. And that discovery was made by Michelle Meissner, the editor of the film. She said, oh, Mr. Slav, we have to include it. My first reaction was, why? Look, my camera, my camera is shaking. This interaction doesn't give any information. She said, no, 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 you don't understand. This is what makes it more than just news. That would make uh, human interaction visible. So that was a discovery for me in, in the editing. That's why we have editors. Yes. And such an amazing editors. I'm really grateful. It raises a point which I found really fascinating about in the film, which is there are numerous times when we see footage that you shot, and often this is gut-wrenching, heartbreaking stuff. And then you show how that footage was used, edited, packaged, and commented on by the major news outlets around the world. What we're seeing through your lens feels very different from what we see on the news. I found this, like I said, this is just really fascinating. It's like a real lesson in media literacy. Can you talk about this kind of cognitive dissonance between experiencing things firsthand albeit through the lens of your camera, and then watching what comes out on the news. And you talked about this a bit before, but think, you know, more specifically about some of these really tough moments. After one of the screenings at the Sundance, a person approached to me and said, I will probably never watch and use the same way I watched them before again after this film. This was a surprise for me because I was not intending to educate people on what is happening behind the camera. We never really see news. That being said, the theme of information and misinformation is a very important theme of the film. 
because it played such a crucial role in Mariupol coverage. Almost every single shot that was published from there was challenged, scrutinized, and questioned, and turned upside down. I wanted that to be a part of the film. I wanted the audience to go through that experience with me as I find out how is it being turned to a very different thing than it was. But that also, that also gives me a feeling that how important making a documentary is in general, because it does have much more context than just a news piece. Having this context for the audience is allowing them to be uh, resistant to misinformation and to misinterpretation of what they see. So yeah, that's one of the key themes of the film, how the media works, how these ripples of the information go across the world. And again, there was a challenge to assemble it right. So it's not too much. A huge part of this war, really any war, is the propaganda war. Russian state-controlled media was arguing that not only was this invasion justified, but they were not targeting civilians. Your film, it's of course universal in the way it approaches the topic of war and its impact on people and a city, but it's also very specific in that you are countering this narrative with every bit of footage that you are showing that shows incontrovertibly that the Russian claims are false. They were targeting civilians. They were firing shells indiscriminately, knowing that they were going to kill and maim citizens. What's interesting is late in the film, there's a clip of the Russian ambassador to the UN who says, whoever wins the information war wins the war. And I was curious if you, in an ironic way, agree with that statement. And how do you view your role in this propaganda war? It's quite curious that he was probably one of the first Russian high-level politicians that suddenly called this war not a special operation. I think it just slipped from his tongue, but it indicates how exactly Russians see that. They don't see that as a special operation. They do see this as a war, as an invasion. As I said before, I'm really cautious about thinking about myself as being a soldier which I'm not in any way. And I am deliberately cautious about it, not being a part of this war of the information that is going on. The war for interpretations, the war for versions, for minds of people. I'm fortunate that my job is just to report. That is my shelter, my moral shelter. All I need to do is to keep reporting. And if you hear closely the narration that is happening through the film that I read, there will be no judgments. There will be no moralizing. It is intended to guide the viewer, to guide an audience through the stories, through the siege, but it's not intended to moralize in any way, anyone. I'm just providing information. And that being said, again, one of the proofs of that is that in the end of the film, you could even see people who are arguing with me that these are Ukrainians are bombing them. This is an extraordinary event because it just shows how these tactics of information siege works on people. 
As you were saying, your job is to report and to get those images out. And there are some harrowing images that you do manage to shoot and to get out. Two of the most searing are the 18-month-old who was brought to the hospital with injuries and cannot be saved. And then there's the footage you alluded to earlier of the pregnant woman who's mortally injured when the maternity ward is bombed. Can you talk about the international community's reaction to this footage and your reaction to their reaction? First international community reaction I got was with Russian propaganda. And the amount of Russian propaganda was so big that I just knew that whatever we filmed was very significant. The amount of misinformation propaganda indicates the importance of the image. Historically, that was the case always for coverage in Syria, for coverage in Ukraine in 2014 with the MH17 flight. I was not surprised, that's for sure. Again, there was a glimpse of hope that it will change something for international society. But at that point, I had no chance of knowing whether it's doing anything or not, because we just didn't have connection. All I had is a couple of minutes of conversation with editors who told me, Mrs. Slav, you have to follow up the story because it's a very important story. The whole world is really on edge. Really wants to know what happened to those women. So I did. I followed up. Again, not because of the impact, but just because it's important to follow up. And I started realizing the impact only when we left Mariupol. I had a chance to read through the articles. I had a chance to retrospectively see the news and how events were unfolding outside of the city. I've got a letter from a mayor, the mayor in exile currently of Mariupol that says that this footage and these photos have helped to negotiate a green corridor that saved thousands of people. I hope that is the case as well. But also just sometimes we would get a message from a relative or a loved one that would say, we recognize a family member in your photo or in your footage. Where were they? Where are they? And we would tell them, where are they? That actually helped families to locate their relatives and to get them out of the city. We know of several stories like that, that actually just save, plainly save people's lives. And that is everything I need to know. There's just enough for me. Even if that's the only thing that happened, then it was worth it. On day 14, we meet Vladimir, a local police officer. He's a bit of an enigmatic figure in the film. He seems to show up unexpectedly and sort of becomes your protector and guide. As a police officer, he seems to be both connected to the military, but also apart from them in some way. What more can you tell us about Vladimir and the role he played during those 20 days? So it's important to remember that police, Ukrainian police, is not part of the military and not controlled by military. So the, he and another police are not combatants. Their main job is to help civilians and to keep an order in the city which they did to a certain extent while there was a possibility to do that. You can see them actively involved and trying to save people after the explosions, after the bombings. And it was more of his inspiration to help us because I guess as many others who we met, he had an opinion that the only way to save the city is to make 
publicly well-known across the whole world what is happening inside. So he took this as his personal mission to take care of us, which I'm really grateful because ultimately you can see that he's risking his own family, the safety of his own family to save us. But he does make this decision and he is actively involved in helping us because he realizes how important this work we do. And actually, he was the one who was trying to convince us how important it was. I was more of a like, pessimistic side and telling Vladimir, we, we keep doing this, and nothing changes. And he was like, no, 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 just keep doing this. You'll be fine. You just need to do this. So he helped us to get through this morally as well. He's a very straight, kind of very simple character, very, very strong personality. And what we don't know about him in the film is that he actually is from Donetsk, which was occupied in 2014. So he lost his home once. He moved to Mariupol and he lost his home twice when Mariupol got occupied. He was so angry because of that. He's so motivated because of that, that he really wanted to help. I have to say in the beginning, again, I didn't think of this as a documentary. However, I already thought that I need to shoot much more than just for news. I thought he might be a character to be in a film, but he was such a plain, straightforward person that I thought he might be kind of too boring to be a character in a film. He's your straight man. He is a straight man, but somehow... There is something to hold for like in, in all these chaos that is happening around us. is one stable thing that always remains there. So ultimately, it really works. At one point, you say, this is painful to watch, but this must be painful to watch. Now that you've had a little bit of distance from these events and you're traveling the world, talking to people about the film and witnessing their reactions, what do you think is the value in having people experience this kind of painful watch? One very common reaction from the audience after the watching the film is that they tell me that it's very hard to watch, but everyone must see it. It's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a, a conflict there, right? But I guess that is exactly what I intended it to be. I was really afraid to not to tell enough to sanitize the pain and sanitize the suffering, not to show enough, because that is something that's sometimes happening in the coverage of wars in general, in media. We don't really see how violent war is. So there is always a danger when you don't show the full extent of this violence, of this grief, that the audience will feel that the war is acceptable. These words, it's painful to watch, but it must be painful to watch is a reflection on that. So the footage from the wall, it must be painful. If it's not painful, we did something wrong. We, we did not tell the story right. But again, I think as hard as this film is, the second thing which I see from the audience is a lot of hope. And that is a discovery for me. There is surprisingly a lot of hope in this film. Hope for survival, hope for resilience, resistance. So people are not leaving the cinema desperate. They leave hopeful and they leave ready for acting on what they just saw. And that is for me 
is a, is a greatest achievement for a storyteller to actually bring people to wish to do something about what they just saw. Well, Mr. Slav, I want to thank you so much for everything that you did to prepare yourself to make this film, what you went through and your team went through to bring these images to life and to light. And I think I can safely say that anyone who watches this film will also be changed by it. Thank you. Unfortunately, there's so many moments which I was not able to film. I dream about these moments every now and then. I see them in my nightmares, that they're not there, and I wasn't able to capture them. But what can you do? Well, what you did capture is truly remarkable. And congratulations to you on this film. I'm sure it's bittersweet, but nonetheless, this is an amazing film. And I would urge everyone to see the film in the theater if you can. I know it opens Friday, July 21st in Los Angeles and San Francisco. Thanks again and take care. Thank you. Stay safe.